Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Jack Hughes of the band Wang Chung. What a great guest and a great conversation was had. And if you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 213, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. We've on the show William Yeski. Now, William is a former member of the U.S. Army who has written a book about his combat experience in the Argandab River Valley in Afghanistan called Dan the Valley. The book has been incredibly well-received and paints a very accurate picture of the trials and struggles that soldiers went through while conducting combat operations in that region. William will be discussing his own life, his journey through Argandab, and what led him to write this memoir. Let's get William out here to tell his incredible story, as I'm not doing it any justice. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show the author of Dan the Valley, William Yeski. <laughs> William, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today? It's getting chilly. That fall weather rolling in towards winter. Gotta love it. I love the cold. Where are you calling in from? So this is from Maryland. Maryland. All right. Like, yeah, I'm Northern Maryland. No, I'm I'm originally from Connecticut. So if you just keep going north, that's where the climate is good for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. So with the pandemic now coming to a close, how was it for you to navigate the COVID nineteen world? Oh man, that was absolutely wild. Because so a lot of people when they start seeing this stuff and they start doing a little research behind it, and they notice that I. I I got out of my undergrad right before COVID really picked up and all these mass pandemics. So I was just about to enter the job market, you know, after time in service. And I'm like, I have a plan and it got ripped out from underneath my feet. You got to be ready to be, you know, Semper Gumby, if you will. I know stealing a little bit of a Marine thing, but Hey, 
<laughs> when you got something going right, it's just right. Right on. But um, yeah, ended up uh, ended up having a pivot, and instead of going into the corporate world of marketing on the other end, I ended up uh, you know, because really there's a hiring freeze when that happens, you know, it's uh corporate didn't know what was going on. They already went remote. What are you going to do with your marketers? They're the first budget that usually gets cut. Yeah. I decided to take those skills that I learned in, in school and put it towards that purpose-driven stuff of helping out other local people with that same type of quality that these other larger businesses would have been getting like throughout either writing ad copy with Google or, you know, some of the smaller, more simple stuff. But when you see it, affecting and positively affecting these small businesses, it's really rewarding. It's really gave me a purpose and it's the same thing. And quite honestly, I kind of feel like a lot of the other military guys out there are almost built for business in that way where we're good for tough times. We go and do the hard work. So it was, it was a little tough, but ultimately navigating through COVID, it was a good thing. All right. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? Oh man, little town, Thomaston, Connecticut, tiny, 8,000 people, you know, just salted the other people though. I mean, really it was good. It was a small town. Everybody talked to everybody knew it. It was relatively safe. We would just do our little, our kids shenanigans, either out in the woods, we'd, we'd go a lot of hiking and stuff just to get out of the house away from mom. But you know, later on walk downtown and go to the library you know, as kids. And that kind of became one of my, one of my escapes, either when it got too cold or the weather wasn't conducive to it and would go into books and I uh, was reading I think it was like by 10 years old reading Norris and Scott, Scott Card like Ender's Game and stuff is uh it was pretty wild it's mm. good stuff though I'll say uh what were some of your earliest career aspirations so well, oddly enough when I was a kid I wanted to actually go and find the Titanic and <laughs> I know. Right. And I think it was in middle school when, uh, you know, I had books, I had charts, I had all sorts of crazy stuff. I was like this little, little adventure kid. And, you know, when Robert Ballard found it, I was like, ah, my dreams are crushed. You know? And, um, kind of, kind of turned a little bit, went towards, uh, gravitated like young boys would do and, and towards fast cars and that end of things. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go be a race car driver, you know, but also kind of had that a little bit of a thing towards the military. You know, it's that adrenaline junkie thing. And uh, I mean, almost almost joined the Marines when I was 18, you know, right out of high school. Uh, got convinced out of it to, to go to college. And that ended up uh, really quite honestly, I probably should have I probably should have joined up at that point. Listen to your heart kind of thing, because mm. that discipline that was instilled through my time in service did me, you know, I, I mean, it's done me well. Mm. Favorite memories from the University of Connecticut? Favorite memories. Well, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, do I have many memories left from the university of Connecticut? That's probably why I didn't make it very far, huh? <laughs> I, I didn't graduate until later on in, uh, you know, Towson post service, but no, nah, I mean, there was some good memories. I actually have some, some friends that I, uh, still have from those college days, but there's one of them actually. I, uh, oddly enough, the first two years I was at a, a satellite campus in Waterbury, Connecticut. And it's not really in the greatest areas. And I actually chased down uh, a criminal. It was hilarious enough. Yes, I, I chased this guy down and then ended up, I saw where he went into. So I went back to, I'm not about to go into this guy's house. 
So I went back to where the squad car had given up. You know, the cop was on the radio waiting. I'm like, hey, I know where he's at. And led these guys back down to this house and they swarmed it. And I mean, it turned out it was the guy um, and stuff. And it was just, it, it was, it was rewarding. But then it was funny because they wanted to like roll out the red carpet and give me a, you know, a, uh, something from the police commissioner, you know, like a certificate and thank you for doing stuff with the city. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I don't want any, any part of that end of things. And so, but it was just, um, yeah, it's a wild memory that people are like, what do you mean you chased down a criminal? I'm like, no. And I tell the full story and they just, they can't believe, <laughs> you know, ripping down these back roads and then, uh, you know, leading the, leading the police down to this house is just, um, you know, sometimes it, something you come, something just jumps out right in front of you and Hey, you know, it just jump right to action. I've always been that guy. Fair enough. So what inspired you to enlist in the U S army over the other branches? So the U S army had the ability to be able to go towards being a green beret. Um, I knew that if, you know, from my previous stuff and from talking with my cousin, he's like in the Marines, like they might promise you something, you know, and like, even back then I had taken the ASFAB and they wanted me for a, a satellite technician, um, on the ground though, which probably just means, you know, an infantry boot with a, with a sat can up <laughs> trying to get comms when they're under fire. But, um, you know, he kind of warned me against it and I was like, well, if I can kind of move that career path towards that, um, you know, the fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq is dying down. Who's who's always in the fight around the world? It's the special forces. Like, let's go. Let's go do it. Uh, so that's really why, why I wanted to go over there. I was like a little smarter. Um, you know, they've got those resources you work by, with, and through with soft. It's small teams. And I was like, I, li I like this concept. You know, so that was the, the purpose and the goal, you know. And um, I kind of, even when I moved over to the 82nd, I always had that goal in mind and, and ultimately ended up going back over. So describe your boot camp experience. Ooh, that's a fun one. So I was a little older when I went in boot camp. You're talking 26 at this point. And I knew what I was expecting. So I kind of was like, you know, when you're coming off the bus and you're getting a shark attack and they're throwing Artie Sims and they've got 240s rocket and you look around you and these kids are just huge eyes you know and running like just petrified and i'm taking it all in and i'm laughing you know and they they see me and they know what's going on too and they're just like man this this older guy <laughs> he's watching all this go on but um on that note i mean it wasn't hard physically i really i prepared myself but it was interesting to kind of see who either who was the ones that were putting forth effort you know and you could you could really tell you know and going back like who are the ones who is going to push themselves and like who should you be befriending and who you know how do these small groups of people work especially when you're thrown into a really high stress environment like how do you, you know how does the leadership and stuff work with that so on that end of things you know that's where it was really good for me on on the basic training but it, i mean as far as being tough it wasn't too bad physically, but, uh, but you learn a lot, you know, there is a lot in there. You just got to look for the lessons. What was your MOS? So going in, uh, going was an 18 x-ray, but that's 11 Bravo really. So you're going through the, through the infantry pipeline. So you start off, you know, Fort Benning 
and they beat the snot out of you there. And then you you go across the street at Benning over to Airborne School, and then you, which is you know essentially the school falling, and you go flop out of planes for for three weeks, <laughs> and you get your wings. And then um, because I was in that 18 series, they truck you over to Bragg, and you start uh, special operations preparation and conditioning. So they throw you out to McCall, and you get some cadre, and that's it's rough, you know. I mean, it. I believe at the time it was a month and a half. And they do all the same stuff, but you're being, you know, I actually think the land nav course was you know, just as, just as hard as the star course when I actually went back and did it, you know, but in doing that stuff and in being exposed to those cadre and, and having that little bit extra, it was almost like basic plus, it was really good. And I ended up getting hurt out in Sopsy, finished the, that particular portion of the course. But when they put me in hold, you know, until my actual selection date, they're like, well, you can't go to this one, but you can go to the, the next one. Should be fine. So I'm waiting for my selection date. And the, the sergeant major over there decides that uh, there's too many malingers within <laughs> within med holds. So he just cut everybody. And I'm like, wait a minute. So the next minute I find myself at worldwide assignment and uh, getting onto the bus to go down the street to the 82nd Airborne. That's where it all began for the, for the book. It's good stuff. Hmm. Yeah. What were your emotions when you found out you were going to be deployed to Afghanistan? You know, we had originally been slated for Iraq and I was not there. That was kind of when they first started to get the big pickup in the EFP problems. And I was a little bit more relieved actually for Afghanistan. I had no problem with being deployed and deployed in a combat capacity. Our command team was, uh, it was Lieutenant Colonel Frank Genio and a command sergeant Bert Puckett. And Bert was somebody who had jumped into Panama. You know, I mean, it's the epitome of what you'd look at as a paratrooper, especially somebody who's going to be your mentor, you know, somebody with a mustard stain, which means, uh, you know, he had a combat jump. You don't see that. Um, and he was just a hard charger and him and him and Frank were just a hell of a command team. And the pace over at Two Fury was blistering. I mean, when I got there, I got there in December, uh, right during, I remember the one thing I remember is that their Christmas ball had just happened because our first Sergeant, we stuck around, like we went from, you know how it goes when you in process an army unit, you get shuffled around. So like we're, we're sitting there, you know, it starts a brigade and you get shuffled down the battalion and then the battalions, they wait for your company to show up and by this time it's lunch. You know, and then your company shows up at four in the afternoon and then they bring you back and they're like, oh, first sergeant's busy with something. And it turns out, you know, it's the night of the ball. So they're all getting ready to go to this thing. We were there waiting across from CQ until like nine o'clock at night when this guy rolls in. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, what have I gotten into? Yeah, I smell a little whiskey. I'm like, oh, man. Okay. <laughs> and he just, you know, he just, he wanted to meet everybody. He always had to meet everybody coming in. You know, and it was just like the, okay, so these are the guys. All right, we'll carry on. I'm like, we waited all day for that. <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, it was like, hey, ITC starts in a week. Hope you're ready. You know, and it, we went right into a ITC cycle in the winter. Uh, uh, and then maybe a month's time. And it was refitting right out to JRTC. You know, and after we got back from JRTC, it was wasn't much longer when it was all right. We're doing, 
we're getting straight on and everything else and we're gone. So they didn't really give us time to even think about it. But as far as I was concerned, you know, Afghanistan, I was like, all right, we got a little bit more of a distance in between yourself and the enemy instead of that urban door-to-door fighting. So I myself, I was a little more relieved. Fair enough. Now you've written a book, Damn the Valley, about your time in the Argandab River Valley in Afghanistan. What inspired you to write this book? So that came from really the need from the guys to establish a historical record. Another book actually got written that's out there by the name of Bravo Company by Ben Kessling. So he's a Wall Street Journal guy. And he did, I think he did a great job. But it was during a retreat that was called Operation Resiliency, where this thing was sort of put together, his book. And when it came out, there was a lot of guys that were, they're upset because they just, they felt marginalized. They're like, well, there's so few of us in here and it's about Bravo Company. And really like people don't understand the amount of incidences that happen in here. I mean, this is something with a 52% casualty rate. And even my book coming from, you know, the boiled down view of one platoon, it doesn't stop. Like, I mean, and once we hit the Argonaut River Valley, it did not stop. The pace is just blistering. So the amount of stuff in there, really it had to be done from a platoon level. And once it started off, you know, and once we had the book deal, that's when I really pivoted and was like, I kind of noticed that if we're going to be as accurate as possible, I got to hold myself to the fire. And that's when I decided that this was going to be, you know, a nonfiction and approved by the DOD, but it won't be something that's boring for somebody to read. I mean, it's written from that, that narrative standpoint to where it's that stream of consciousness. So, I mean, it's very easy to understand, very easy read to pick up and go through. And it's written at the high school level really for a few reasons. And one is that most soldiers out there that are boots on the ground and infantry, really, this is written for them. And if you go full out, you know, in that far end, literary end, they're, it's, you're going to lose them. But I think that the nice part with it being dual purpose is not only can they, you know, get through it. And some of these guys, you know, one of them actually got back to me. He read it. He went through it in a night. You know, I mean, for a <laughs> a kid with a high school education going through it in five hours, that's that's not a normal thing. I mean, I got it. It's about him. He was excited. But, you know, I had gotten a call from him. I think it was, I was just about to get ready. It was like five in the morning, but I knew he was West Coast and it freaked me out. Because I thought, uh-oh, you know, this is one of the guys, and I know he had just gotten a copy of this thing. Like, what's what's happening? Like, and I wanted to make sure it wasn't anything, uh, possibly because some of these guys have come back saying there's been some some triggering stuff. Hey, I'm I'm smelling smells from the battlefield, or I'm getting cravings, and I pick up the phone, and the very opposite. And he's like, oh wow, I didn't know you'd be up. You know, I'm like, man, all all you guys from that deployment are on my. You know, you, you get past my do not disturb list. It's okay. I, <laughs> I want to be there in case I have to be. And he's like, no, he's like, I just wanted to tell you, man. He's like, this, this is exactly what I needed. And that right there, that was everything I, you know, needed to hear from it. And so, I mean, it fell on the right audience's ears and it was understood. And it's something that they can put up on their shelf and be proud of and be like, dad was part of that. 
but it's also part in getting them to share their own stories too. I mean, a lot of these stories in here, it started out as, as just from me, but then turned and the more I included people and more of the other guys that I got their stories in there. And it ended up really being a very good round picture. There's still more out there, but um, I really thought it was a good purpose in order to get other guys to get that that weight off their chest. And it seemed that a lot of them needed to. They needed to talk about it because they couldn't really talk about it with anybody else because some of this stuff people just don't understand. It's very weighty. So when you, the survivors of your platoon, you told you were writing the book, they were pretty receptive to the idea. They weren't sure exactly at first what to think. I know one in particular, he was very receptive at first, but then he actually got into reading this other book and he got angry. And I got this nasty call of like, Hey, fuck you. Like, this is, you know, ridiculous. This isn't going to happen. You're a piece of shit. And I'm like, whoa. And I told him, look, man, like, I don't know what you're going through and I don't know what's going on. Like, there's a clear shift in everything. So like, this is, this is what I have to say about it. Just let me say my piece. But the reason why I want to talk to you and the reason why I told you before, the same thing applies. I'm going to write this manuscript, but then I'm going to shoot it back to you because there's certain instances to where you were the only one that saw certain things. I mean, if there's 125 people that go out on something and a traumatic event happens, there's going to be 125 different stories. And the, the thing is, is that every single one of them are going to be correct because it's coming from the perspective of the person that, you know, is telling it. And that's how they perceived it and experienced it themselves. So if you get an accurate picture, some of these things you have to talk to, you know, anywhere from three people. But if there's a questionable thing, then you got to up it to five people. And then even if like one of those doesn't jive, then you're like, okay, so then you got to up to seven people. And some of these patrols are, you know, 12 man to 14 man patrols is mainly what we operated in. So to get that clear picture and to make sure that you're getting a good picture of it, you know, every, every guy is really crucial. And it took about three months, you know, and I just kind of let him simmer on it. And I got a call back and he was like, Hey man, like I've been dreading doing this, but you're right about what you're saying. So let's just take a chance. Let's, let's see what happens. Hmm. Let's get it done. You like, know, okay, let's do it. And yeah. So that being said, you know, how important was it for you to um, observe the experience and get the historical accuracy on record? Hugely. That's actually the reason why the launch event was held at the Airborne and Special Operations Museum for this book down in Fayetteville. So there's the actual cover. So the cover of the book is an actual picture from the battlefield. Like everything that's in there is pictures that other guys took. You know, there's a, there's an insert with 30 pictures in there. When the publisher came back and was like, we want to do this book, but we want pictures in there. Can you supply them? And, and I'm like, sure. And I just said, sure. Like I had nothing. You know, I knew there was guys out there with pictures, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to be at the mercy of them. And sure enough, I mean, they responded in droves. You know, we created a share drive and that's really what started it. But when I put together a concept of the cover and everything, everybody agreed. They're like, that is, that's the cover picture. And the flag from the cover picture is, so one of the guys called me when he saw it and he was like, hey, I have that flag. Like at home, 
I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, I recovered it from the battlefield of Afghanistan. You know, I, I took it back home with us and I've had it ever since. I've just thought it was something that was important. And I'm like, well, what do you think uh, should be done with it? You know, I mean, do you think it's something that could help this project? And we kind of went back and forth and we decided that maybe it would be cool to get it into the unit historical case. And we started plugging away. We just started contacting and seeing what we could do. Well, sometimes getting a hold of an, an old army unit, you know, especially for something like that, they just, it, it gets sidelined, you know, especially if you're, if they're busy, there's a lot going on right now, but there was the airborne and special operations museum in downtown Fayetteville. And when we came back from that particular deployment, there's a brick out front with the guy's names engraved in it that we had lost over there. And I was like, you know what, let me, let me just call. It kind of feels right. You know, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. You know, why not? Let's see. And wildly enough, we get the curator on the phone. That's like number one strange incident. Okay. So it's like, well, I am the curator. Okay. So we start talking and he just goes dead silent. And I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And, um, he stops and it's just this, he's like, you have no idea how strange this is for me. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I've been waiting for a call like this for so long. And like, it just, it turned into this thing to where guys are, we brought artifacts in. Like, I mean, there's, so during the launch event, there was stuff on display, one of the old guys' uniforms and, and kit, but there was also a backpack with holes in it, you know? So there's an, an assault pack with holes in it from ball bearings that went through it during a suicide bomber incident. And uh, a magazine that was in one of the guys, um, the magwells in his weapon, and a ball bearing from that suicide bomber had actually skipped off the PMAG. That's how close he came to losing it. But he didn't realize it until after the situation calmed down. It was one of the team leaders, and he had up security, you know, and the other team leader looked at him and was like, hey, man, you might want to change out your mag. And he looked down, whoa. But I mean, this stuff's now on display. And there's a whole bunch more of it. And there's more of it that's flowing in, uh, believe it or not, that the guys, you know, they have these pieces of history. So, I mean, not only is this something that you have in book form that's been a DOD approved and accepted into the Library of Congress, but you have a, a museum experience where you can actually see, you know, not touch, <laughs> you know, it's right there though, but you can see this stuff. You can reach out, it's right in front of you. And you have the book and ever since February, I've been posting daily at least one, uh, one picture from that deployment up on at, at damn the Valley book on social, you know, across the board. And it's, it's been a lot, you know, when you're really taking what's considered an omni-channel marketing campaign and you're working on it as an author base, <laughs> but on how rewarding it is when the guys come back and I'm getting, man, I'm getting people that are contacting me that were there before us and people that actually replaced us afterwards. And I'm getting contact from other units and, you know, interpreters that were over there and stuff. So, I mean, this thing is huge and it's been growing like, but I really think it's because it's, it's a movement behind it. You know, it's not just a book. That's why it's not on social at William Yeski. It's not that. It's at Damn the Valley because, you know, really every single one of those guys 
should be on this book is accredited to. Yeah, I just wrote it, you know, but really it's it's from us. It's from First Platoon. Right. And it's been a really rewarding project. It's been good. Argandab was one of the highest casualty rates in the Afghanistan war, along with Korangal. Uh, three of the company were KIA. More than a dozen suffered life-changing injuries, and more than half of you got Purple Hearts, almost 52% casualty rate, if I remember correctly. For my listeners yes. who will never set foot on this soil, God willing, paint a picture of an average day in Ar- in Argandab for you. Average day, it just doesn't stop. I mean, literally... You, the intervals for sleep, you'd get two or three intervals. There are two or three hour intervals, maybe. And I mean, that's like if something didn't happen, you know, if it was removed to where it was myself, Lieutenant Demarest, and um, the platoon sergeant, sergeant, uh, sergeant first class Matt Hill, we would run the talk end of things. And occasionally I'd be tossed up in the towers and stuff. But I mean, you're talking 28 guys on an outpost to where you're needing to run combat patrols, you know, of 14, uh, you know, 12 to 14 guys, plus man four towers and an entry control point for security, plus a radio for command. And then all the regular duties that you have on that thing, you know, it was just a blistering pace. And some of the most austere conditions you ever come across just when there was a group of CBs that came out there at one point and they looked at how we were living and they were just like, what the heck? Like, you know, you guys stink. It's like, well, we haven't had a shower in three months. You know, we, we route patrols through the river to get the, the, <laughs> the grime off us sometimes. And that was just, that was just how it was, you know, you accepted it, but yeah, I mean, it was just brutal. It would break anybody down. And the, the guys that came in after us, you know, and we had done, Oh my gosh, we had improved that place with so much. But even then, when the guys came in to replace us, they were just like, "Oh, <laughs> this is where we're living." <laughs> like, yeah, man, <laughs> you're up. <laughs> Crazy. Okay, Deval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with William Yeski. Mention that you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Cluzo style. Pay attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Hello Duval Nation, Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. 
more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. We're Sam's Army in the Gang's all here. This is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all the streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. This is William Yeski, author of the book, Damn the Valley. I invite you to take a journey into a combat deployment that I was on during 2010 while serving with the men of the 82nd Airborne Division. On that deployment, we suffered a 52% casualty rate and filled the wards at Walter Reed with soldiers that had been serving within the heavy conflict that was happening within the Argonaut River Valley. The stories contained within the book are all true and even verified by not only DOD sources, but the men that were there on the ground fighting. I should know I was one of them. It was not an easy task to write, but one that paints a vivid picture for the reader and a picture the reader won't soon forget. Pick up a copy at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, or your friendly neighborhood independent bookstore today. Hi, I'm Kay. And I'm Jay. We all know that a lot of us spend most of our waking hours at work. So naturally, the majority of our stories come from the many different characters and situations we run into at the workplace. Because of this, we bring you the Fuck My Work Life podcast. On this podcast, we will be sharing your stories from the workplace, no matter what they may be, so we can all laugh and commiserate together. Does someone at work have horrible habits? Crazy bosses that have no idea what they're doing? Hilarious blow-ups from coworkers? Even if you just need to rant, we want to hear it. Everything will be completely anonymous, so don't be afraid to spill your guts. That's right. All names of people and companies will not be disclosed, so send us your best. No story is too small. Email your stories to fmwlpod at gmail.com. That's fmwlpod at gmail.com. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods. For more fun content, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at FMWLPod. We can't wait to hear from you. Bye. Hey there, this is Chad from Larkin, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find all of our releases on No Records out of Long Beach. That's K-N-O-W. 
or you can find them on almost all streaming services. And we hope to see you around down the next gig. Cheers. Oh, Kant and his comrades like lions at bay From South Dublin Union, poor death and dismay But what was there often the invaders men saw All the dead khaki soldiers in Erin go bra everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 213 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the author of the book, Damn the Valley, William Yeske. So I do have to ask one question. You know, how are the survivors of your platoon doing? You've got a range. You've got a range. There's definitely been... There's been... You know, I mean, we've lost a few more. We've had some suicides and stuff along the way, which has been, that that to me is heartbreaking, you know, and you have some guys that just, it's, um, they're trying to reintegrate into society and it's pretty rough for some of them, you know, and some of them are doing really good. Some are very successful. You know, there's a few that, you know, I look at and I'm like, hey, you know what, they're driving me, you know, I'm like, and if they, if, if they were there, and stuff you can push it you can go forward and do that and use the that discipline and stuff but there's some of us doing really good there's some of us doing bad there's a there's a full spectrum there there really is how'd you get lieutenant general ben hodges to write the forward so crazy enough he came in and did battle drill assessment on one of the attacks that happened that we had responded to and i really didn't have any idea until later on down the road. And I saw a picture of him there, you know, and he was the RC South commander at the time. So when I initially hit him up, I'm sure he was like, well, who is this guy? You know, and I kind of gave a picture of like, Hey, I was in the Argon during this time. And I'm contacting you because you were the RC South commander. And I'm trying to get a better picture of things. And we talked for an hour and stuff. And he kind of gauged down, um, where, who we were and where I was like within the battlefield and stuff. When we got, you know, I got a few different larger scope picture of things. Cause that was my big thing. I'm like, Hey, look, I'm on the ground, but I also want to understand it from this level in order to paint a better, you know, better picture of everything that's going on within the scope of things, but not getting too crazy. So he assisted there, but I kind of had his curiosity at, at that point. And then when I was looking for someone for forwards and stuff, there was a few considerations and Petraeus had actually been one of them. Um, but I had not known that he was coming out with his own book at the time as well. And he was just like, Hey man, like I'm running low on time. I don't think I can do this, um, but I'll write you an endorsement. So I kind of, and this is one of the other things too, is I mean, Petraeus going forward and writing the first endorsement on that um, was a big deal. But a lot of those guys, they were all involved within 
Argonauts type, type stuff. Like that's Petraeus was McChrystal's replacement when we were in the Argonaut. You know, Hodges was there as well, uh, working, you know, under Petraeus within the RC South area. So he understood it very well and it was very personal to him. So when I brought it forward to him, it was really just an ask, you know, and I was just like, hey, I kind of feel that you align on this end. And, you know, I, I hear that you're a good commander on that end of things. And what do you think? <laughs> you know, and he molded over and he was like, uh, I don't think he wanted to do it at first, but I, I, I feel that the particular incident that I covered, that was a very personal one. He knew the family of one of the guys that had passed away in it. And uh, there was, I mean, there was four Americans killed in this. And this was in the book. It's uh, the 1508 incident that we responded to. There was nighttime. They um, they used a vehicle bomb to breach the hole in the wall where these guys, uh, where these guys were staying out of with the Afghan police. And it was a complex attack that went into breaching the wall and then sending in, you know, groups of attackers as well as suicide bombers. And the guys that were there from were from HHC company and they were used to staying in Kandahar. So they thought it was rockets coming in and it wasn't. And a lot of these guys dove into the bunkers. So it was an inside job and these bombers knew what was up and what was going on. So as you have these suicide bombers coming through the breach and lighting themselves up and guys throwing grenades and hitting it with RPGs and flowing in, They've got guys going through, running up to the bunkers where these people are diving into. And, you know, basically, essentially, it's just a kill house. They're just shooting their AKs down into these bunkers where these kids dove into to seek cover. And it's just an absolute horrific scene. We were 800 meters down the road. You know, nobody had even known we were there. And we had just come back from a patrol when the sky lit up from the initial bomb going off. So we ended up running to contact to this thing and it had gotten there just as soon as these guys were leaving. And when all was said and done, I mean, here we are bringing the casualties and the wounded out to this portion of, you know, open portion out there that was a, an Afghan graveyard, you know, so these are shallow graves, you know, with stones as markers and stuff. And we're bringing birds down to take these guys out you know, in the middle of what this graveyard was. It was just, uh, you know, and afterwards going in and seeing the damage and destruction of everything and then assisting that night and bringing up security and, I mean, helping get accountability. You know, and I remember talking to one kid who had been down in those bunkers that was shielded by um, one of the sergeants that was down there, you know, and the sergeant ended up dying in this kid's arms, you know, and here he was alive and he you know was bawling his eyes out and you know just pouring his heart out to me on it and yeah that was that was quite quite the night mm. quite the night so from there that's when general ben hodges came in the next day to kind of do the assessment on what had happened you know and then pull apart the situation and that is um really how that came to be you know, nothing that was, uh, I guess, arranged, you know, and it was just throughout the process. It's, it's, 
it was something that was true and that uh, we've had so many incidences with this book like that where the truth just bubbles out and it, it's a natural progression that it's it's been very rewarding hmm. and it's been resonating and i mean really that's that's the big thing is it's been resonating with people and that story's getting out they are listening to this and that's been so rewarding to be able to present that you know for those guys you mentioned General Petraeus did the endorsement for it. What has the overall reaction to the book been like? So a lot, I actually was shooting out copies and stuff of this, probably the final manuscript, the guys that were there got it two months prior. And then I was also shooting out some other military and stuff. It's been coming back really well, like guys that were there and even, you know, guys that were veterans from in the eighties. And so if I had one of them that was over in Ranger, Ranger Regiment in the 80s and stuff that did Grenada, and he was just like, man, I got, you know, I've got these memories and stuff. I've got like the picture of certain things happening right now. And they've, they've loved it. Even the DOD uh, reviewer, I got this thing back from the DOD in three months. And they're like, how did that happen? You know, that doesn't normally happen. So it's like, I didn't know, you know, this is the first time I've done that. So I contacted him and I'm like, hey. I'm kind of curious what's your background and the guy goes oh so uh, i was former infantry he's like i love this thing man <laughs> he's like this needs to go out there so i sort of pushed it along you know so it from the guys that were there it's been good and even you know from the civilian side uh there was some of the wives and stuff of the guys had read it and were like i know these stories but hearing it this way is just different and you know it it's had some really good feedback. I can't be more happy about it. Good, 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 good. Talk about your time at the U.S. Army Central, sorry, U.S. Army Special Operations Center of Intelligence of Excellence. That's oh, a mouthful. That, that is a mouthful. <laughs> I think that that's the one that they had on LinkedIn, which is really just the SWIC school. Yeah. Um, Man, that's cool. There is just so many things that they do there. That was, so, I mean, like when I left uh, the 82nd after this deployment, they actually had me slated for the striker brigade that we had replaced. And I was like, I ain't going over there. Not a chance. Um, And the report date was the day after Thanksgiving. So we had a small class and a small class for selection was something like, it was like just over 400 people. And <laughs> when I was, uh, only 97 of us passed, but, um, you go from there and you go over to the Q course, which is, you know, the, the center for excellence as they, as they so put it. And, um, I mean, it's just, it's just more schools. Uh, you know, you go to language school. I was assigned Russian, who would have thought, right, that a few years down the road, all of a sudden there's all that. Hmm. And uh, in between there, school's out at McCall, and then you have things in the schoolhouse over there. And you, I worked into later on down the road, I went over to the civil affairs side and, you know, even more, you know, and it was pretty wild actually with some of that stuff to where you do some of the area study research with people that they have on on board. And of course our area is Eastern Europe. And a lot of everything that's happening right now 
I mean, they really, they pre-gamed a lot of it. We saw a lot of the stuff happening with the Russian pipeline, you know, and moving it through Turkey. And, and we were like, as I'm seeing this unfurl in the, in the news, I'm just like, oh my God, man, I've seen this happen. <laughs> like I've seen all these moves already uh, years prior. So, I mean, just the resources they have, it's, it's pretty key um, and pretty have been you know, part of. What led you to leave the army? Start of a family. That was really, so I had a, um, I had a packet in to go across the street to the other, other side of things. <laughs> and, you know, the woman I was with who's, who's now my wife and she's like, Hey, you know, I just, I just popped up pregnant and I'm like, Oh, you know, you were about to leave for, so we're dual military. She was actually about to leave for somewhere in UAE. I think it was, might've been Bahrain. You know, and I was, I was actually leaving for a long walk selection and, you know, I kind of evaluated and I was like, well, really quite honestly, something like that, serve two masters. That's, that's kind of rough. And I chose the family side, you know, I was like, there's really, realistically, there's only, there's only one way for me to go and I got to be all in on it, you know, and that was it. You know, I went over to the family side and I went, okay, I got eight months left. And I'm just gonna do out the rest as a as a platoon sergeant over in the 82nd Airborne and finish it out. Said see you later out the door. Went over went over to the reserve side. Did three years over there with the uh, 450th CA group, and um, here I am. You know, it's been good though. That's good. How have you been dealing with your own mental health in the years since you returned from Afghanistan? And how can the veteran community do better about sharing and being vulnerable with each other in an effort to heal? So quite honestly, in writing this, I didn't even realize it so much until writing this that I had a lot of things that I've been kind of running from already. You know, I was going at it full bore. You know, I got out of the service and it was... You know, I mean, my time in the service even was just, hey, like, let's let's do every school possible. Let's go as far as we can go. Let's push it. Let's light it at both ends. Um, and even getting out, you know, I finished business school in two and a half years. And then I went on to a program with Cornell. You know, it was a certificate program. But then I was like, okay, if I can get into a certificate program in the Ivy Leagues, like, let's go full out. You know, and I went over to Columbia Business, you know, just finished up program over there but, but in writing this it kind of slowed me down enough and started to realize i mean there's chapters in there that i wrote with like just tears pouring down my face and started to realize and just how much it actually did affect me i sort of thought that i could talk about it before and i didn't have any issues but when i started really delving down into it um and to started to see like that you go through these things, it is going to affect you no matter what. I don't care who you are. This stuff does affect you. Um, but I've been kind of running from it. And really in talking with the other guys and bringing this stuff to the surface, though, to where it's somebody that understands it and that you guys can can pull it apart together and sharing these stories with one another. And that really, like through this process of writing this thing, there's been a lot of healing there. And it go it sort of went in conjunction with some of the things that we learned over at 
the uh, and I write about it too. The Operation Resiliency Retreat that we went to it was a a peer to peer based therapy, but then with actual clin- clinicians and stuff on the side. So realizing also that peer to peer can only go so far, and these clinicians are definitely necessary. But sometimes to open up and being open up to these different therapies and stuff that they open open up to two different veterans and stuff that you first have to be willing to talk to the other guys around you because maybe they don't realize that they need help. Maybe they're running too, or maybe they think this is normal and it's not. And some of the stuff is not normal, you know, when, especially on the hypervigilance end of the spectrum and you don't realize how it's affecting you or your family, you know, and when you start, seeing it and when you start breaking it down and you hearing you're hearing it from other veterans like matter of fact I'm I'm always learning I'm always listening and one of the things I heard recently was um one of the Delta Force guys that was over in Blackhawk down uh Thomas Adderley but he said something that stuck with me that my wife has said before and is it's not it's not what you say it's how you're saying it. it's your tone that you still have that command tone behind it. Like, I don't want to be talked to like that. And start realizing that I was doing it, but I hadn't, and I wouldn't have unless it was something that had come from someone like that. So hearing that from him and evaluating my own and going, oh, I am doing that. Uh, I would have never known unless I heard it from another another guy out there, you know, another vet. So these these sort of things are important. It's important to talk about and put out there. Talk about rally for the troops. So rally for the troops is something that was put together uh, with Tony Lacey. And originally, you know, he was the concept about it, a lot of the same thing that peer to peer therapy, but taking small groups of guys and rally racing is out in the woods and we we love being out there and it's kind of those conditions but it's tough it's one of the hardest forms of racing and you take a take a small group of guys and you give them that purpose and that um that goal that you have to fight through that adversity get this car through it. a lot of its attrition rate your pit crew is is essential and you got to be able to work together in a high stress and environment like that so really it's a lot of those same uh, underpinnings that you find in the military and bonding these guys through that, those stressful situations, um, you know, in a common cause to, to win a race. And it's been really, it's been good to fellowship and it's been good for the guys to, to be there with one another doing that sort of thing. And I mean, Hey, how much more wild man does it get than, than throwing a car through the trees at 80 plus miles an hour? <laughs> <laughs> I ask every veteran who has come on my show this next question, and if it's okay, I'm going to ask it to you. Uh, what were your emotions when you saw the fall of Afghanistan? You know, we had a lot of, there was a lot of good people over there that I met. There was, you know, I mean, you have the the bad end, but there was one in particular that I always thought, like, these are the people why we're fighting for Afghanistan. And it was one of our interpreters, Gucci. I mean, really, you're turning your back on the people that you were fighting for and were trying to make a difference in their lives. And it's it's kind of bitter 
see that that we pull out of there and to see it done in the way that it was you know i mean i'm not i'm not the guy that knows you know i'm not i don't know everything behind the scenes and that's way above my head but i know for a fact that i mean it doesn't and it's not just me you know it leaves a bad taste in our mouths when we see that but what is heartwarming is that you see other at least you do have other organizations and it seems to be on the private end formed by other veterans that are creating things like uh saver allies is one of them that goes in there and they're pulling people out you know they're trying to get it in there and and they have intel services and stuff and they're using the same people that have been operating in afghanistan in order to kind of continue the mission but from a private standpoint and trying to get these people out of there that are caught in a hell of a situation you know i mean what's going on over there right now is it's nothing that we would ever thought we would have had those people to have to experience you know once again so it's terrible. In your humble opinion, why do you feel lack of leadership in today's society can be solved by veterans? Really? I mean, we know what it looks like on some of that end. You know, I'm not saying every leader that we had was the epitome of, of what was right, but we had a lot of good ones out there. And I know for a fact you know, that those, that, that strong leadership, those strong leadership capabilities, they do exist within the military. And there's a, a lot of guys that really, when you get out, you should be looking to continue that purpose, you know, within, within your communities, within your schools, you know, even just working as a, as a soccer coach for these kids, sometimes these kids don't have parents that have any sense or any, any leadership ability on that end. It's got to come from somewhere and they see it, you know, they do see it. So to be that example, you know, and if it is a coach capacity too, like not to be screaming at these kids, you know, but to make it to something to where you, there does have to be that, you know, that hard mentality, but it's also that to where they realize that it's not just that that's not a leader is someone yelling at you, but like trying to mentor you through that and trying to coach you, not that ultimate, you know, ultimate authority end of things. I would like to ask you uh, one question, and that is, you know, Pierre de Coupetan said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What would you say to him? Pay more attention to everything going on around you. Like I wouldn't tell them to change anything, but I would definitely say to be more mindful while going through and, you know, not to, not to freak out as much, you know, don't, don't, there's always a way out in these situations, but you have to be able to look for it. And you can't do that if you're stressed out and anxious and freaking out about it. So you have to be able to take that tactical pause you know, and take a breath and look for it. It's there. You just don't know yet where it is. So what's next for William? Well, there's a, there's a few things in the works, you know, I mean, obviously we got to go through this book launch tour and stuff and get that out there. But really what I want to focus on next, there was, um, there was something I wrote five years ago. You know, I mean, really a whole nother book. I just, 
kind of was like, I don't know why I wrote this. And it had to do with my transition out of the military and creating frameworks towards, you know, I mean, frameworks towards success within anything from working out to eating to mindset to, you know, I mean, things like when you're simple stuff on the end of, let's say you're, you have an hour commute to work or school. Okay. You know, instead of bopping along to music, fill your stuff with knowledge, man. Like be listening to either podcasts with somebody that's a subject matter expert in something that you're interested in or, you know, a, a book, you know, don't just be, don't, don't waste your time. You know, fill it and change your mindset and gain that focus and look at that goal and head towards it. You know, there's, there's also a shift in mindset too with, um, instead of, I don't know where I was going to go with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, I just don't know how to segue into it right now. Fair enough. As we enter the final phase of the interview, I'd like to ask one fun question. Uh, what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? One of my most relaxing things actually is working on cars. I know that just seems a little bit like, wait, what? But, but when uh, when I was in school, I had a little bit of a, a fun project to where the guys were talking and they said, you can't have a, you can't have a nice car these days without a car payment. And I kind of was like, Oh, <laughs> watch me. <laughs> um, I told them, all right, what's the, what's the budget? And they're like, well, you know, it's kind of crazy. I'm like, how about under a thousand dollars? And they're like, no way. There's no possible way you could take thousand dollars and turn it into something that's, that's decent and reliable. I'm like, okay. Game on. And I mean, I think I've had two semesters left. Maybe three. There was two though. But I went from, uh, and it, it was almost like fate had it. I went from a $800, well, $500 Jetta that I put 300 bucks into. And that car, I mean, it, the start of it was horrible. It was just, this car was disgusting. <laughs> so gross. But it went from that and cleaning it up you know, and putting a fuel pump in it and fixing that. But it went, I think it was like four by four or five more cars. I drove into school at the end in a $140,000 Audi A8 W12, which has a Bentley motor in it, it has a 12 cylinder 6.0. The newer ones have a 6.2, but you know, I drove up and the kids were like, they just looked at me like, what the heck? I was like, here you go, gentlemen. And a semester. I think this is all right to enter the executive world. Right. And they just, they, it just blew their mind. You know, I mean, here you go. They, they massaging front and rear seats, you know, to where the rear seats recline. They had, I've never even had anything like this before, but um, I guess I exceeded my own expectations there. But I mean, I liked working on the stuff in between there. I like working on cars because they're like a gigantic Lego thing. And it, kind of lets my mind work differently than the normal it's working in that spatial end so that to me is fun you know to where i can even take apart the engine um and i have no problem doing that i guess you know I, you gotta take a risk you gotta be able to do it most people freak out when all of a sudden all the pistons are out on the ground and they're just like how does this go <laughs> <laughs> i had some fun cars in between there too there was one of them was there there was an audi s8 like the old ronin car in between there that car was a blast oh my god that was that was fun nice 
What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Well, for this one, you can go to damnthevalleybook.com and that has all of the links off the social as well as a way to get author signed books. And uh, I know those are for every two author signed ones I sell, I'm able to get one of the guys that was there a copy. So we're not there yet, but I'm trying to get 150 of the guys, you know, copies of their own for their own shelf at home, really, because, you know, I mean, they were there. I really think that they they deserve to have one of these. But um, yeah, anywhere on uh, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or YouTube, it's just at Damn the Valley Book, if that's your preferred method, and they should all cross-talk. So go check it out. William, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? Don't freak out. Take a tactical breath, take a pause. There's always that next step forward and it's going to be okay. All right. Damn the Valley is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble or wherever books are sold. William, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today, sir. This has been an absolute pleasure. Derek, thanks for having me. It's the same here. Pleasure's all mine. Honestly, God, thank you. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 213. I want to thank William for taking the time to come on the show. He is a solid guy, and I do want to wish him nothing but the best of luck for his future endeavors. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, if you think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up today for new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, we are getting down to just 11 days to Christmas. Better get your Christmas shopping finished, folks. I'm getting mine finished this weekend. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.